Greetings, humans. You have entered the command zone, your destination for all aspects of Elder Dragon Highlander. Enjoy your stay. The weather outside is frightful, and the fire is so delightful, and since we've no place to go, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow, or in this case, rain outside. It's been raining in LA, thank goodness, it even hailed today You may, uh, I don't know if it'll come through on the mics, but there's been a little bit of thunder. Yeah. So maybe you'll hear that at some point. In the thunder, don't, 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 you guys get two songs today. (laughs) (laughs) it <laughs> as a song. Yeah. <laughs> What's up, everybody? You are watching slash listening to the Command Zone podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Wong. How's it? It's Josh Lee Kwai. It's almost December. It is December. It's December. Yay. That's why we're Because of the festive. holiday, we're recording this a little bit ahead of time. Oh, that's right. That's right. But for uh, them, it's December. Yes. Good, good. That's why we have Christmas things up, because we I would definitely not allow that uh, before Thanksgiving. I would have allowed it after My Halloween. My friend was like, after <laughs> Halloween, can I put it up yet? No, let's wait a little while. <laughs> we got to get a turkey in the oven first. Um, so today we're going to be talking about a question that often comes up in games. And uh, it's it's one that I think actually affects games quite a bit. We've and talked about it. Usually when we do deck text, we will point out this kind of thing. Yeah, but we've never actually gone super in depth with it. But during a games, you've been in this situation before. You play a tutor, you're looking through your deck, and then you're looking at the rest of the table. And then you're looking at your hand and then back at your deck. And the question often comes up, what card do I get? What is the best card at this moment? But oftentimes, you, I would say like seven to eight times out of ten, I end up getting sometimes the exact same card. Right. There's a card that you would designate as your quote-unquote best card in your deck. Obviously, like, I need to answer this threat. You go get the answer. Right. I need a board wipe. You go get that. But there's a lot of times where it's like, I have a tutor. It's mana efficient to play it. But there's nothing I need to answer right now. In those cases, you generally want to go get the best card in your deck. Yep. So you have to know what the best card in your deck is. Yep, and how to gauge that. And so today we're going to be breaking that down. Uh, but before we get into it, if you would like to buy the best card in your deck... <laughs> <laughs> you want to have uh, best cards in your deck. Like, yeah, you, you yeah, want... yeah, yeah, multiple, actually. Yeah, yeah. But you also you, you want to... Like, the best card in your deck, you want to own that card. Yep, and so the best way to do that is by going to cardkingdom.com slash commandzone. Make sure you type in the full affiliate link. And once you're there, it's the exact same site. But now, every single time you make a purchase of any Magic products, singles, sealed product, you're directly supporting our show, and we can't thank you enough. Yeah, it doesn't change anything else for you. You just get the same Magic cards you were going to get at the same price but you just simultaneously help us with all of our content we really do appreciate everybody that does that another one of our sponsors that you also support all of our content by supporting them is ultra pro the best card in your deck i guarantee is going to be something that you're going to want to have in a very high quality sleeve which yep. means you need the entire deck probably in that sleeve because it would be weird sleeve, yeah it'd be weird if it was a different sleeve <laughs> <laughs> what's the best card in your deck uh it's the one mismatch sleeve in i can see it from something fell down back yeah, there yeah. i can see it. uh so ultra pro really is going to have the best stuff to protect all of your magic stuff so your cards they're going to have the best dice they're going to have awesome play mats Eclipse sleeves really are the creme de la creme of yeah. sleeves. And, and if you have good cards and good decks, you really do want to put them in Eclipse sleeves. Ultra Pro, always supporting our content. Can't thank them enough. Yeah. Uh, and the final way to support our stuff is directly. If you go to patreon.com slash command zone, you can interact with Jimmy and I on our Discord. If you're at the right tier, you get to see game nights early. And we shout out one lucky patron every single episode. And this episode is dedicated to... Adam Good. Adam Good. Adam, 
you rock. Also, it was cool to have a name that I looked at it and I paused because I was like, I will have no trouble pronouncing yeah. that. <laughs> this one, well, what if it was like Gaud or something? Uh-oh. Guarantee we messed it up now. Yeah, yeah. I said that. Yeah. I like, guess it's actually uh, Finnish. Yeah, you guys <laughs> messed it up. Okay, let's get right into it. The best card in your deck. So before we actually talk about, uh, we're going to separate this episode into two chunks. First, we're going to talk about how to determine the best card in your deck, ways and metrics to look at it. And then we're actually going to go through some of the decks that we played on game nights, on extra turns and and identify what we believe is the best card in the deck and talk about why we got to that reasoning and also uh, it, a lot of times those cards actually ended up appearing in the show that we, that we played them in so it's also a good way for you to go and check that out and see exactly our words in action i, I after we did that exercise too and we'll get to that obviously later but it's interesting to see that there are similar cards or the same cards popping up like yeah if a card's in a deck and it's the best card in a deck it's maybe the best card in different M- decks multiple too multiple decks because yeah. it's a very good card yep and because they all share a lot of similarities and so let's talk about some of the aspects of what makes a good card in your deck so the first one that we talk about all the time in the show is just straight up synergy so a synergistic card means that it's a card that works in conjunction well with other cards abilities spells themes uh, tribes that your deck is going for and a card with good synergy if you play it and let's say you took a random card from your deck um, that wasn't a land or maybe even could be a land you have a high percentage chance of that card working well with that card because your deck is synergistic with each other so it's usually a flexible card it works in multiple situations it's very adaptable and usually it has a very good chance that it's going to impact the board in some way that benefits you yeah it's, it's usually like high value i like what you said flexible like we said, best card in your deck is often the card where when nothing else, the default setting to go get is that card because it just works well with everything you're trying to do from then on out. Yeah. If your commander is, I'd say most decks are now built around their commanders. Um, if your commander is going towards a theme and you have just your commander in this card, it's like adding NOS or an extra like boost of power to your deck because usually your commander is pointing you in the direction you're going and the best card in your deck is going to open up the rest of the possibilities. And I think, you know, a lot of people would when you say, what's the best card in the deck? It's easy to sort of say expropriate. Yeah. Or the most. Or like Mana Crypt. You Torment know. of Hailfire. Fire. It's not usually actually the card that's going to win you the game at the end. It's usually a card that's going to accrue you value or get you to the point where you can win. Yeah. Or like secure the win in, yeah. in the case of certain decks. So let's talk about some basic cards that are overall very synergistic and people could consider the best cards in their deck. So in, in, in enter the battlefield decks yep. where you have a Yarok or a Rune of the Hidden Realm. Like, those uh, cards by themselves... Brago. Brago, yeah, are the best card in the deck because they're your commander usually. Right. But we're talking about the cards outside of that. So cards like Panharmonicon or anything that can, for instance, like a Deadeye Navigator is going to be the card that, like, opens up the door. And all of a sudden, it went from, oh, you're scary, to, oh, no, we right. have to do something about this. Or, oh, oh we're, yeah, we're yeah, definitely going to lose doomed. now. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Panharmonicon is a great one in those. In a, like a plus one, plus one counter synergy deck, uh, like a Traxa. Right. Um or Ramos, or Animar, you might go get Hardened Scales if it's early in the game, or maybe right. something like Doubling Season, right? Those might be the best cards in your deck in those cases because it's like those cards, and, and Panharmonicon's interesting too, right? Where that doesn't actually do the thing. Right. It doesn't trigger your commander, but it makes everything else the deck's doing at warp speed from then on. Yeah, normally you would say, oh, a card that does nothing by itself, how can that be the best card in your deck? But when that card single-handedly makes 70% of your uh, deck twice as good, then it's worth it to say that, yeah, you need one piece to make the other piece really function. Usually you'd be like, if the card doesn't do anything on its own, it's hard to consider it a great best card. But Panharmonicon, you're right. It's just one of those like, yep, 
it does the thing. Um, Atrax is also a really good example because of the proliferate. So it makes it really flexible. It, you could also say Atrax is the best card in the five-color Planeswalker deck at the right. same time. So like it has a lot of, although I would say doubling season is usually your go-to in terms of that. And doubling season is actually really similar to Panharmonicon in the same way. But doubling season would maybe be the best card in the Atraxa deck, whereas Atraxa right. would be one of the best cards maybe in a five-color Planeswalker. Planeswalker. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, if you have a life gain deck, then a card like Crick, Son of Yogmoth, is just going to be very good. Or any of the commanders or legendary creatures like Karlov or Ailey, Ailey, Eternal Pilgrim, that are able to use the life gain that you're using and like in a very destructive and powerful way. So uh, it's tough because life gain synergies, I would say like it's hard to be like, oh, this card is very synergistic with life gain because just having more life means you have more time to do stuff more flexibility and there are not that many cards that abuse having a high life total yeah but in life gain decks maybe like well of lost dreams might be one of your best cards because a lot of times the best card in your deck is an enabler for your strategy in a life gain deck it might be like you've got a lot of time but you need other resources like cards well of lost dreams turns life into cards yeah or you can dome someone with the death star and it reflects reservoir (laughs) might be one of the best cards although that's probably more of a finisher but yeah something that Use your resources really well. And in Yarok decks, it's using the resource of enter the battlefield effects. But in life game, yeah. I-, I could see something like Well of Lost Dreams being the best card in certain life game decks. It's interesting, too, because I would say that Aetherflex Reservoir is almost better in a deck that is a storm deck or one that wants to play a lot of spells because you get the most value out of the actual card. As a, If you're doing it in a right. life game deck, then you're just looking at the part that says dome someone. And right, you're them. not casting five spells and then do, gain yeah. life off of it. Although it will gain you a life. little life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, tribal synergies, any creature that's a lord, so it says all zombies get plus one, plus one, those are often the better cards in the deck because they affect, again, a huge swath of your deck. Uh, and then you have a lot of the cards they've reprinted uh, printed recently, like Herald Horn, Vanquisher's Banner, that all give you card advantage and care about the tribe. And a card like Arcane Adaptation that makes your tribe work, even with the creatures that aren't in your deck, if you're trying to go for like a, a less fully focused tribal deck. Yeah, that's interesting. And I've seen tribal decks where the best card in the deck is Conspiracy. Right. Which turns all of your creatures into a certain tribe that you choose. Arcane Adaptation is similar. Um, yeah, because maybe you didn't build your deck to have 100% tribal creatures, but you need that card because it really makes the rest of your strategy work out. Yeah, if you already have all elves or something, you don't need Conspiracy or Arcane Adaptation, right. and now the best card might be Vanquisher's Banner or something similar. That's probably too high mana cost, but something that says all your X tribe draws your card or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and finally, uh, land synergies is also something that I think it gets overlooked a lot just because lands are so powerful. We've talked about how mass land destruction doesn't really happen uh, in common games of EDH, so your lands are more protected than your artifact ramp. So cards like Golos, Tyler's Pilgrim, obviously are incredibly powerful for land decks. Same with the Lord Windgrace and Gitrog Monsters. And in those cases, cards like Glacial Chasm might be the best card in your deck. or something Crucible that, of Worlds. I could Crucible of Worlds, being, yeah. Yeah, the best card in your deck. Any of those effects. Just a fetch re- land might be the best card in your deck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, uh, Life from the Loam. So all of these cards, you can tell, like they are highly synergistic with the deck. And because of that, they're able to become, quote unquote, the best card. Um, and I would say the overall overall power level of synergistic cards goes up with the more cards in your deck that can work with it, just because you have a higher chance of when you play it and you will draw into something that does good stuff with it. Um, and there are oftentimes a lot of cards, like we talked about the expropriates and all that stuff, but just by themselves will be good no matter what. So a Crick deck, a Crick in a mono black deck, you could put it in pretty much any heavy black deck and it, it will be very good. And you could put Golos as the commander of almost any five color deck and be happy with it. I got to stop us really quick here because I learned that it's Kirik. It's Kirik? Yeah. 
But, but there's no I. There's a apostrophe. Kyrik. Yeah. So there you go. I learned that from some wizards people. After having said it Some actual wizards? Some actual wizards. Although Gosh. they've been incorrect before, but sure. I, I get their argument. It has an apostrophe. Anyway. Yeah, I like Kyrik. Yeah. Kyrik's it's better than Crick anyway. Of I'm still calling it Gave though, even though they want to call it Gave. I like Gave way better. Yeah. What was the other one? The uh, the one mana make make a bunch of dudes, the elf token guy, green, white, so Reese. Reese, yeah. We call it Riss, but it is Reese. Yeah. Sure. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I, sure. enough people said it that I'm like, yep, that must be how it is. All right. I like Carrick. I can live with Carrick. Yeah, Carrick. Okay. Sounds like a character of the Dragon Ball Z now. <laughs> We're on the same page now. All right. Let's talk about power level. Yeah. So a card's inherent power level can also just make it or determine it to be close to the best card in your deck or maybe the best card in your deck, even if it's not inherently synergistic with the rest of your deck. So we mentioned this a bit briefly. If your deck just has no synergies and is all just straight good stuff, then a card like this might be the best card in your deck, for instance. And they're often like eight, nine mana as well. I, I mean, I find it hard to make like a seven plus mana card to designate it as the best card in the deck mm-hmm. because you just can't go get it on turn three. Right. So how can that be the best card? It's situational. Yeah. I would count the best card in your deck something that's like five mana or less most of the time because early turns, that late game stuff, just Torment of Hellfire is just not useful until later. Yeah, and, and like... It's the, the most card powerful that, card in your deck, but right. is, it the, is it the best card? Yeah, and the card you can play on turn four or five is going to last you through turn 11, whereas a card you play on turn nine that may not win you the game is only going to last you like an extra... You know, like you have a lot more use out of a card that lasts a lot longer. Right. Um, Herald's Horn, I think, was a really good example of this when we had the Kumena deck that I played mm-hmm. just because it, it came out early and just kept accruing value over and over again. Yeah, it was just so good turn after turn and like you're a little head, then you're more head, then you're a lot ahead and it's all because of this one card just sticking yeah sticking around big mana power level cards one of the ways that they can become the best card in your deck sometimes is if you are trying to catch up right if you're behind severely if you're a control deck and it's really important for you to get ahead of your opponents or if it takes a large amount of action from your opponents to restore the board parity uh it's not necessarily a win-win card but like it'll get you so close that everyone else spending their resources is going to make uh be a good case for you to to take down the game past that so they're Ooh, back on the table. <laughs> There's some immediate win cards that we always talk about. And again, these are not necessarily the, most, the best card, but they will be the most powerful. So Expropriate, Insurrection, Time Stretch, Omniscience. You'll notice, that ex- fire. Ex- yeah, you'll notice that Expropriate and Time Stretch, even though you get the extra turns, what you really need from Expropriate is the permanence you steal. And what you really need with Time Stretch is something to do in the extra turns. But almost always, by the time you have 10 mana available, if you get two extra turns, you're going to win because... Yeah your mana advantage over the table is now 20 mana at the minimum. Yeah. Um, if you're in a more controlly deck and you are trying to set the pace of the table and decide what happens, then you have a lot of cards that I, I call like the very hard to recover from cards. So a, a very well-timed Cyclonic Rift, obviously. I mean, I think a lot of people could say, yes, Cyclonic Rift is the best card in my deck. But that would also signify to me that maybe your deck isn't built with maximum synergies yeah, or I don't know other that, areas. I don't know that it is. Like, it's certainly the best in some scenarios. But again, if you look around and the board's pretty much even, like, you're not behind. You don't right. want Cyclonic Rift there. You don't want to rift your, you, you know, you don't want to rift until you're, like, setting them back. If it's early in the game, especially, like, the time oh, when you're going to play... sucks early, yeah. Yeah, if you're going to... On the same turn you're going to play Panharmonicon is usually not a turn where you would want to play Cyclonic Rift, mm-hmm. you know, because if you're free to play Panharmonicon, then you're you know, you're in the developing part of the game. So I think that Psychrift is great where it's great, but it's not great always. Although I guess you can say the same for Panharmonicon. Right. You know, you need a little bit of setup. And you don't want to draw it on turn 14 necessarily. It might be too late for the value to be accrued. But in general, there's a lot more turns prior to turn 10 than there are after turn 10. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, the majority of the games, what was the statistics say that it ended around? For you well, for us, uh, 
I we we couldn't do turns when we did our stats, but for game nights, it's around turn twelve yeah. is average. Yeah. Um, cards like Armageddon too, again, very very powerful, but it much better. For instance, if you were in the control shell, or if you were in like a Joyra deck that you have, mm-hmm. where Armageddon is potentially the best card in your deck because it's hard to debate between Joyra and the ten monsters you could put out. But clearly, Armageddon is the thing that is the thing that will get you to the victory. We know it can't go into Joyra, everybody, but there. Yeah, that the, kind the, of that effect. Kind sorry. Of effect, yeah, yeah. Um, you could just play any of the red versions. Yeah, of Armageddon and, instead. And Joyra does. That's the original Joyra too, not the new one. Yeah, yeah, which um, is awesome for a different reason. The Praetors have a similar effect, hard to recover from. Playing a Vorinclex and having no one be able to answer it means that everyone is set behind super hard. Again, this may not be the best card, but it might be the most powerful. And there are occasions, and I think this can change a little bit too. It's Your best card may not always be the best card in the deck, but it's entirely dependent on the table. But for the most part, I would say like consistently the best card in your deck will always be the best card in your deck. Right. These could be the best card in certain scenarios. I doubt yeah. Vorinclex is the best card in your entire deck. In most scenarios, but yeah. sometimes certainly it is. Yeah. Uh, um, Taxis is another mean one, whereas if it doesn't get answered, nobody has any hands. So. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty bad. Um, <laughs> and of course, the cards that just get you extreme value and as the resulting cases are often banned. So a long time ago, we would all have said the Prophet of Crufix is the best card in my deck. Yeah, for sure. Um, or a Paradox Engine. Yep. These And these fit the mold of Panharmonicon. Yeah. Which I think is often that type of card is often the best card in your deck because it's going to be good in most scenarios. Now, when you're under extreme pressure, maybe not. Although Paradox Engine, a little different. It, <laughs> it can often just win you the game on the spot, but it was also a good value card. Um, the Another one that fits in this category, and I think we'll see that this bears out later when we talk about our own deck, Seedborn Muse is uh, the type of card that's just sort yeah. of, eh, if you don't have anything else that you specifically need to get, Seedborn Muse is just always going to be good. Yeah, it's kind of when you're flipping through your deck, it's always one that you bring to the front. Yep. And like, this is a good option. Um, it's and, never going to just do nothing almost, you know, yeah. if you built your deck and it's in there. It's it's the only sort of like real relic of the untap all your things era that's still around. And we're we're happy for it. We're glad for it. Okay, another way to check uh, if your deck, uh, what the power level of a card in your deck is the quadrant theory. And we've talked about this a lot. And actually, Limited Resources went back and revisited this recently and went a little deeper in on the quadrants and how applicable they are at different parts of the game. So this was originally coined by Brian Wong from Limited Resources probably like seven years ago now. It was before we started our podcast, that's for sure. Yeah, uh, and it was made, It was when we started listening to Limited Resources, Brian was still the, the co-host before LSV uh, entered into the equation. Brian was great. Yeah, Brian I mean, LSB thought. is great too, obviously. <laughs> uh, and LSB was the one that wrote the newest article addressing what Brian had put on the table. Um, and this was made with limited in mind. So, But, but it may- works for our format. I think you just have to weigh the different yeah. quadrants uh, differently. So there's basically four quadrants um, or game states, I guess, that mm-hmm. Brian hypothesized. And they are developing. So this is the first few turns of the game. In EDH, we might give it an extra turn maybe because it takes a little longer for EDH games to get off the ground sometimes. Depending on the power level of your group in your deck, it could be somewhere around turn four, maybe yeah. five, maybe lower if you're closer to CEDH. If you're playing like cube power level, like Brandon Sanderson's cube, everyone was a turn four, really like get going kind of deck. Yeah, I would say even turn five, we were still developing. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, parity is when uh, everything on the board is relatively even, so you don't really have a good attack. They don't have a good attack. You sort of just sort of sit there and look at each other. A stalemate. Uh, it even could be somebody has like a good attack, but it's like a two-two. Yeah, you know, it's mostly even out there. You couldn't if somebody came to the table and said who's winning, you wouldn't have a, very, a super clear answer. Yeah, parity actually happens quite a lot in EDH yeah. because it's not just you attacking one person that can block, but there are other two other players that could potentially crack in at you. So then everyone usually is at a stalemate in yeah, a lot it, of cases. It could easily be like Jimmy's a little ahead, but if he actually did anything, then everybody else could hit him. So he, he can't. Gets, yeah, so he's still behind. kind of at parity just because his he's not ahead enough for it to matter. Yeah, and then there is ahead. So you are ahead of the table. You just psych rifted. You just did whatever it was a board wipe that benefited you. A you time just wipe. Seaborn Muse. Yeah, he has played Seaborn Muse. <laughs> Uh, and the final category is behind. Well, I want to stop on ahead really quick here because in 1v1 games, and this is where we differ a little from limited resources, uh-huh. you'd be generally ahead the same amount that you're behind, you know, oh, in general. Right. But in EDH, the I'm ahead category or quadrant is way less often. It's not going to happen, you know, as much as you're behind just because the raw amount of players. Yeah, so, four people scrambling for the top of the hill. So no more than one-fourth of the time, you know... On average, are you going to be ahead at any given point in the game? Yeah. And if you are ahead, then you have three other players that, if they work together, are taking you down to take you to the last quadrant, which is behind. So when you're losing, basically, your board isn't as good as everyone else's. Or it's just not as good as the top person's. And I think you're in this position the most. Yeah. Where, like, somebody's ahead and it's not you. Yeah. It doesn't mean you're, it's debilitating or you can't win from that position, but you're not currently in the lead. Yeah, it doesn't make you fourth place necessarily. Right. Everyone's kind of scrambling to be second slash third for the most part. Um, so the way that we use these quadrants to evaluate cards is in developing in the first turns of the game is how good is the card when we're doing our initial plays. So Deathrite Shaman is an incredible way to be very good early in the game. Not so great when you're ahead. Yeah. And not that great really when you're behind. It doesn't solve the I'm behind problem, right? But so good in developing, I would say even really good in parody as well. So two out of the four quadrants, this one drop can satisfy. So when we're going to look at like what's the best card in your deck, well, like, okay, we can put Deathrite Shaman on the list because it's really good in two out of the four categories, but it's lacking some others. So then you'll look towards the other ones like parody. How good is a card when, you know, everyone's balanced out? Um, and parody isn't just a board stall. Like if you could, if you had two one ones and they had a two two, then you're still at parody, but you have more creatures than them. So then you would look at a card like, can it break board parody? Is it something like a time wipe? where you get a creature back and everything else gets erased, you know? So then, wow, how that's great. Or it's is it like a bane of progress where you may not have a bunch of artifacts and enchantments, but everyone else does. So like that card breaks board parity, but it's very bad at developing and isn't so great when you're ahead, but it's really good when you're behind. Other cards that are really good in parity are like value accruement cards. So Ristic Study right. is really good in developing, really good in parity, not great when you're behind, uh, not necessarily great when you're ahead. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Depending on the here. kind of behind you are. If you're behind a little bit and you're going to have some time, Ristic Study might help you get back in it. So it's not horrible. Right. Uh, ahead, it's like, oh, I need to be closing the game. And that's when you want your big heavy hitters. But yeah. but at parity, a lot of times I like Panharmonicon's great at parity, right? Mm-hmm. You're at parity. I'll play Panharmonicon. We're not going to be at parity for very long. Yeah, you're gonna, it's going to allow you to leapfrog in front of other people. Yeah. And actually, when it comes to the last two categories, uh, Brian, LSV, Marshall, everyone else usually considers being ahead as the least important quadrant and being behind as the most important quadrant. Because being ahead is great, especially when you're you know about to win. But in EDH, it's probably the most dangerous position to be in because everyone's got their daggers pointed at you. Yeah. So I actually think that it's this is where we differ a lot from how they think of the quadrants uh-huh. because 
win more is a thing that is talked about a lot in standard modern all the 1v1 things because you don't need cards that help you win more right that much you're already winning you're doing the thing however in edh being ahead in the game is actually a dangerous position to be in and a smart way to play is to never try and get there is to be in the second place mm-hmm. position to hide under the radar let somebody else take all the heat and then you pop in at the end after they've all been in a little bit of a scrum or a brush up and they're all bruised up and you finish right. everybody off and so i think we actually want cards that are good when you're ahead a little bit more than the other formats however we still have to worry a little bit about win more uh mentality you don't want too much of that yeah i would say the card that gets like a panharmonicon again is a great example because the card is so good at pretty much every of the other spots and then when it gets you to start winning it's not like it just wins you a little bit it wins you a ton without sacrificing a lot of space in your deck to do so think if you're ahead in a deck that has panharmonicon a yarok deck a brago deck a rune deck is panharmonicon still good Yes, absolutely, because yeah. you're ahead, right? So you that means your machine is running. You're blinking stuff. Yeah. Now I'm doubling everything I blink. But if you're behind or at parity, it could still be awesome because now I'm doubling everything that I blink. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when you're ahead, it does a good thing where it really catapults you to the massive forefront. And like Josh said, like it's the perfect time to do it is right when that top player is about to fall off their throne and you decide to race to it. The only problem is that when every other player has that in mind, then everyone's going to try and do it at the same time. And that's when a card like Pinamaracon really shines because you're doing it twice as much, you know, theoretically as everyone else because you're doubling those effects. Um, and of course, being behind... I think is the most important category because you don't want to fall too far behind unless you get into pity zone and then people just sort of ignore you. But you also don't want to be, you know, constantly behind and not able to catch up. So cards that break you out of behind into parity or better are very powerful. In addition, because what we just said was that that's the position you're most likely to find yourself in most of the game. Right. So just by virtue of the fact that you're going to be behind in the game, in most games at some point, means that cards that are good there are going to be useful because you will find yourself there. You're not always... Yeah. Not every game of Commander are you ever going to be ahead. A lot of games, you're just behind and you don't win that game. And yeah. you're never ahead in that game at all. And some games, there won't be parity at all, but, you know, a, a lot will. But almost every game at some point, you'll be behind. Yeah. There are, of course, rare games where you're ahead and you're ahead throughout. Ahead the whole time, But that's yeah. pretty rare. And I would say those are the games on those... Ner- if I'm that person that's ahead the whole time, I'm like, when is this going to end? Because I'm not used to this feeling. <laughs> yeah. Definitely yeah. all three of you are going to knock me off my perch, right? Yeah. Especially yeah. when the decks are, again, like equal power level. And that's sort of the, the, the basis of all of this. I would actually add one more category to the quadrant theory to make it the penta theory. I don't know how to describe it. Uh, which is, how much does a card affect player's opinion of you? Mm. So it's... The quadrants, I think, are probably still the same, but... It's, it's like another one on top. Like, in our in our format, maybe whether you're ahead or whether you're behind is not just a situation of who actually is ahead or behind, mm-hmm. but who the table thinks is ahead or behind. Yeah, and who's carried the most favor as right. well. Because if you play a stasis, for example, no one's you may be the most ahead, and that may be the best card in your deck, but no one's going to like you, and everyone's going to immediately gun for you. Actually, if you play stasis and you're behind, they're still gonna everyone's go for still going to gun for yeah. you, right? So like that actually affects the the level of a card as well. We talked, DJ and I talked a couple episodes ago, or maybe last episode about um, sometime in November, right? Yeah. So Sometime in November <laughs> about uh, aggro decks and how often people overestimate they, they're overly scared of them um, in contrast to how strong or well the deck is actually doing because right. it looks scary just hit somebody for seven but when you break it down it's like yeah but this guy 
just drew seven cards and she just put out a pan of harmonicon but yeah. i'm still scared of the aggro deck that might hit me for 10 with creature damage yeah it's true i mean i think the only time that it's you really have to pay attention is when the person has something like a sunforger out right like the fire saw and sunspeaker deck you were running with two three cards the whole game right but because of that single artifact it was way scarier and people had a real reason to be scared of you otherwise it'd be like no look at his hand look at his board look at how much mana he has to tap just to cast his commander it's, well, but not. you've done scary stuff and it looks scary, so you are scary, which isn't always wrong. Yeah. I don't think the yeah Fire Song and Sunspeaker is not really an aggro deck, but um, and it's just a it, it's, it's a, more of a value deck. It's an Etherflux Reservoir deck. <laughs> <laughs> um, and finally, the Quadrant Theory is going to shift a little bit depending on your deck's goals, like we were just talking about with aggro. Uh, I think ag- aggressive strategies are really going to de- like like developing and ahead. Uh, in terms of the quadrants yep. they really want to focus on. And then control de- decks, like some control decks don't even really care about synergies. They just care about the overall power level of their stasis or how good their counterspells are. Right. Like a counterspell is not, isn't necessarily like, you know, synergistic with your deck. It's just, is do you have a force of will? Because it's better than this. Right. A mana drain's better than that. So like that's the things that stasis decks care about more, I think. Um, one last question before we jump to the uh, analyzing our decks. And this is one that I actually don't know the answer to. So the best card in your deck is Expropriator, Panharmonicon, or whatever it is, and you can all and you also have a demonic tutor in your deck. Does that make the tutor the best card in your deck or the card that you're getting with it? Well, I think tutors are the best card in your deck. If especially specifically demonic tutor. Yeah. I mean, you can always say, yeah, vampiric tutor, demonic tutor, because they can get any card are the best card in your deck. We always say how they're second copies of cards. Thing is the tutor is the best card in your deck. It's the best answer in your deck. The best second best card in your it's deck. the best wrath in your deck. It is, and that's why tutors are so good. And when we talked about how to determine your power level, one of the things we we mentioned was how many tutors are in your deck is one of the big indicators of how powerful it is. Mm-hmm. If you have five plus tutors, your deck is going to be very, very strong because all of your best cards you have multiple copies of and the ability to get it at the time you need it. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I think it would be easy to say, yeah, a tutor is the best card in my deck. But the question we're asking here is, when you're tutoring, you need to know the best card in your deck a lot of times because, for one, it saves time if you know what that <laughs> is. But two, like, you, you want to be able to go get the thing that's going to help you the most. And if yeah. it's Panharmonicon and you just know that, you can at least, like, is there anything specific I need to answer? No, then my default is get this card because I just know it's the best card in my deck. Yeah. Unless your best card in your deck also happens to be the one that is the best answer in your deck, and you always need that answer. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a quick mineral break to hear from our sponsor, but when we come back, we're going to talk about our own decks and what we consider to be the best cards in them. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that 
Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. All right, we're back. We're talking about the best card in your deck and why. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting question. Um, So we've talked about how we can value cards in a deck based on the circumstance. So let's take a look at our own decks from Game Nights and Extra Turns and see if we can come up with a consensus on what we consider to be the best card in each of those. So the first one we're going to start with is my Rune deck. Rune! Yeah, I've played it on Extra Turns, Episode Mm -hmm. 2, and on Game Nights, Episode 24. We've talked about this for a long time. This was the second or third episode of the podcast. I think we talked about your Rune deck as well. So this is interesting. So Rune, if you don't know, you tap Rune and you blink something. It it goes into exile and then comes back under its uh, owner's control at the next end step. Mm -hmm. So you can blink your opponent's things too, which is sometimes useful, but that's not usually what you're doing. You're usually blinking your own stuff for value. So like... Mold Drifter is a classic one. Yep. Because you can evoke it, and in response to the mold dr- the evoke, evoke trigger, before you have to sack it, you blink it out, comes back in on your end step, you just do four cards for five mana. Uh, Rune does cost two mana, and you have to tap it to do it. So, interestingly, I don't think Panharmonicon is actually the best card in the Rune deck. Mm, interesting. Uh, it's a very good card, and I considered it when we were asking this question, but I think Seedborn Muse is the best card in the Rune deck. I would have to agree, because of the commander. Yes. Your commander needs to untap and tap to use its ability, and while Panharmonicon makes every single card that your commander is doing this to really powerful, Seaborn Muse lets you activate it multiple times. Now, if you're a Brago deck or a Yarok deck, which are also both Blink decks or Enter the Battlefield mm-hmm. Effect decks, Seaborn Muse is still fine, although you can't play it in Brago, uh, but not the best card, I don't think, in either of those decks because neither of those commanders has to tap to do anything, yeah. whereas Rune needs mana and has to tap. So being able to use Rune on everybody's turn, including your own, means I now get four Blink effects... And that's better than, let's say, the two Panharmonicon gives you. Yeah, that's very effective thanks to Seaborn Muse. It's the same reason that Prophet Kruvix is so good. We were all saying you're taking three turns or four turns instead of just one. So yeah, it's a good good instance there to, to understand why a card like Seaborn Muse is voted over a card like Panharmonicon. Uh, the next deck we're going to talk about is your... Oh, yeah, you want something uh, else? Yeah, I just would say, too, another thing that was in the running would be Deadeye Navigator, which you mentioned oh, right, earlier, right. which is... Uh, a cheaper way and easier way to do what rune does and it's also an instant speed flicker as well yeah and i would put it more in the category of like an expropriate as far as like that's more of a game winning card but it's not always the best card to get sort of in the early and mid game yeah it's like a nine mana to play and activate once right Uh, yeah eight i think but yeah and you always want to have mana up to activate it and you know and rune to protect it as well or it to protect itself yeah 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 yeah, yeah. and that's the great thing about the rune seedborn muse thing is rune can protect your seedborn muse too Mm -hmm. because they board wipe even and you blink out your Seaborn Muse and yeah, Rune dies, but you get to keep the powerful card. Yeah, you can always recast your commander, of course. Um, Okay, next deck is a brand new one that you just brewed up. Uh, We haven't actually played it on the show yet. People have requested it, but it's your Greven deck. Yep. Uh, We talked about it on the 286th episode of the show. I actually did play it too at the um, Command Fest Seattle. We did a charity stream. So if you go to Channel Fireball's stream, you can probably see it in action and it some fireworks. It didn't win the game, but it it, it did its thing. Yeah. Um, did you get to play this card in it? The I didn't. If card? I had drawn this card and been able to get it, I would have won for sure. Ah, uh, good now, sign it's the best card in your deck then. Yeah, this card, this was difficult for Greven to figure out what the best card is. There was a lot of things that I would say are in contention, but uh, I ended up with Chandra's Ignition, which is sort of a game-ending card, but mm-hmm. it does so much that it's also just like a good board wipe. This one, you choose one of your creatures and it deals damage equal to its power to all opponents yeah. and creatures uh, besides itself. So with Greven, you're usually making it huge, 
paying a bunch of life, doing a bunch of damage to yourself, and then swinging in for a lot. This can clear out blockers, can kill opponents, often kills everybody out of nowhere, uh, and also is just a good board wipe, mm-hmm. even if you're just baseline, played on Greven, five to everything. Yeah. Yeah. But if you happen to get Greven to like 20... Which is not that hard. Yeah. And the nice thing about Chandra's Ignition, and it's also, by the way, the best card in my Neheb deck, is because it deals damage to everyone but you. It's a very one-sided board wipe for red, which seems strange because usually red's like, it, you know, no matter the what, it's going to hit yeah. everything. Yeah. So Chandra's Ignition definitely has a very special place in my heart as a result of that. And it just can win the game. Yeah, other cards that I might have considered were something like Sword of Feast and Famine, which is just really good value for right. the Greven deck. Wall of Blood, which is just like, or Necropotence. Necropotence probably the second best card in the deck, which draws you a bunch of cards, also can insta-kill somebody, because mm-hmm. you can be like, play Greven, comes back to your turn, doesn't look that scary. They're like, I can take one hit from that thing. Play Necropotence. 16 cards into Exile, he's a 21 power, kill you. Yeah. Then wow. I drew 16 cards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I would say either of those are pretty much up there. Chandra's Ignition like hits every player. Greven, being an aggro deck, would might might want that more than, than being like, that one person out at one time, right? Yeah, and also Greven doesn't have a ton of trouble drawing cards because you just play like a three mana eight eight and sack mm-hmm. it to Greven. So the card draw is important and you still want it, but it's not as hard to come by as the board wipe slash finisher. Yeah. Okay, next deck is my Marchesa deck, and I don't think I've actually, we've seen this on camera yet. Have you not played it on the show? I think we, I may have recently, but that episode may Hasn't not aired be yet. aired yet, yeah, and I'm not sure. Oh, I think I played my Greven deck in that episode, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, tease Coming upon tease upon tease. <laughs> to a show near you. Um, so, this was actually really hard for me to do, too, because this is a very value-based mid-range deck. And I actually, ha- I was, I'm still trying to decide between these two, but I believe Glenelendra Archmage is the best card in the Marchesa deck. Oh, yeah, it's so good. It, because Marchesa, so Marchesa gives our creatures dethrone. If they attack someone with the highest po- uh, life total, it, you get a plus one, plus one counter on that creature. And anytime a creature with a plus one, plus one counter on it dies, it goes to your graveyard and then comes back at the beginning of the next uh, end step. So in the case of glendalendra it already is coming back because it persists and it comes in with a minus one minus one counter and if you can get another plus one plus one counter on it it basically resets the creature so it almost is completely unremovable by traditional means that isn't exiling it um and even then it can probably counter the thing that's exiling exactly if not you have sack outlets on board and it's really really easy because the deck is all about losing your own life total to get back up to that amount so glendalendra in general, just an extremely good card, but made even better because the commander superpowers it to this unkillable thing that keeps coming back and stealing or encountering your spells. Yeah, and that deck is often about putting 1-1 counters as stuff in other means too. So yeah. you have the means, not only through attacking with Dethrone, to put that counter on Glenelendra and yeah. keep it going forever, yeah. Which is why... Unspe- it's often a lock. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I play against that game lock. a lot, but it's a it it can be a good mid game play, but it can also be like I play this cement my board position. I have six counters in the bank now. There's no way you guys are getting through that. Yeah. Um, the only other consideration would be a card that puts counters on stuff, and it's the only one that really does it in the colors, which is Unspeakable Symbol. Uh, and you pay, three, pay life. three life, which is also good for the deck. But there have been a lot of times where the three life is too much. Right, you can't do that seven times. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's kind of similar to like Treasonous Ogre. It gives you a ton of mana, but at the cost of a lot of life. Interesting. All right, the next deck we're going to talk about is my Golos, Golos deck, which I Golos, played in Golos. number 28 of Game Nights, the one with Yara, Kamaz, mm-hmm. and uh, MTG Nerd Girl. This one was pretty easy, I think. It's Scroll Rack. 
Um, Golos is going to cast cards for free off the top of your deck. There are... I, I went a little light on the... Um, Insanity cards. I went a little light on the extra turns cards, but that's yeah. the best way and most powerful way to build Golos, and I've definitely seen that out in the wild quite a bit. Yeah, because you just keep going and going and going. Yeah, and what you can do with Golos is just stack the top of the deck with an extra turn spell every time you activate it, and then because you already have the mana to activate it, you do that again on the next turn. So any cards you draw, you put back on top of the library, mm-hmm. and you can just basically keep that chain going. Um, and it's pretty easy if you have a scroll rack out to just be like, I take an extra turn, I activate Golos on that extra turn, I take another extra turn, I activate yeah. Golos on that, and then I'm also casting the other two spells, which are awesome because I put them there with Scroll Rack. Yeah, and that's the flexibility of Scroll Rack is you get to choose, okay, I want one board wipe, one this, one that, yeah. you know, and then you get to stack the top of your deck that way. Scroll Rack, very good card in general, but actually I found that this card, unless, it's one of those cards that I think is Feast or Famine. It's either yeah. amazing in your deck, or it's like, you don't actually need this in your deck, it's making your deck worse. I think early on, and probably we mentioned this in early episodes of the podcast. I think I remember doing it. Oh, I we, definitely did. We considered Scroll Rack to be on the almost the same level as like Sensei's Divining Top, Soul Ring, where you could put it in any deck and it'll make any deck better. But I actually don't think that's true. I think yeah. Scroll Rack, like you said, if your deck doesn't specifically care about the top of its library, then Scroll Rack is mediocre. It's not yeah. as good. Top is way better uh, because it's cheaper and just what it's doing. It's, re- it's pretty easy to get rack locked where you look at your cards you put some cards down there and now i know what my next five turns look like and i don't have a way to change that equation and so that didn't help me that much yeah scroll rack again much better in the deck that has tons of card draw and a lot of fetch lands or ways to shuffle your deck or it's narset it's jaleva it's golos and it's it cares specifically about what's up there yep Okay, next deck we're going to talk about is my Hogak deck. We played this in Game Nights 27, where I infamously said math is for blockers <laughs> and promptly lost the game to a bunch of bears. So maybe there are no good cards in this deck. No, the, the deck was very good. <laughs> um, yeah, good enough to be banned in modern, that's for sure. Yep. Uh, so Altar of Dementia, I think, is probably the best card in this deck, or Hermit Druid, both because they are able to... Well, okay, you know what? It's Altar of Dementia. <laughs> It's 100% Altar of Dementia. If you're going to activate Hermit Druid and only get one yeah. land into your hand and nothing in your graveyard, then it's not Hermit Druid. Yeah, actually, you know what? It isn't Hermit Druid because <laughs> that card is a magnet for removal, and it's Altar of Dementia gets you what you need to do much faster and much better, which is just like turbo milling your deck. And, of course, Hogak being able to be cast out of your graveyard and with Altar being able to mill that many cards means that you also, you know, as we saw in the Brand Sanderson game, have the potential to mill out other players. Altar of Dementia is one of those cards that I think if you if you're newer to commander or magic or whatever it's hard to understand but people who have been around for a while understand that that card needs to go if it, it has sits to there go, yeah they will win with that card it looks like how would they do that that seems really hard it's not like that card's nuts it's also only two mana to yeah. cast and the amount that mills is just absolutely insane it can target anyone it should have caught like cost a mana to sack the creature or something like yeah. it's almost i'm not saying it's broken it needs to be banned or anything but it's very powerful in the decks it's, it's kind of like scroll rack though yep if, if it's in your deck, it's probably awesome, but you you definitely can't put it in every deck. I mean, you can, because it's an artifact, right, but we but... don't suggest it. <laughs> Not a great idea. Hermitrude, you're right, though. It's one of the scariest cards people can play on turn two, because definitely there are wins. Yeah, just like, straight Like, activate up. win the next turn, so. Yep. Uh, the next one is my favorite deck, still to this day. It's my Vile Smasher and Thrasios deck. I played it on... Wow. Game Night's number two. Yeah, and it hasn't changed that much since then. No, I haven't right? updated it much because it's, it's good as is. I might, I think I put it in a Wilderness Reclamation. I took out... Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I had to take out some stuff. Um, 
This was a little bit tough for me, and I waffled between two things. I think the best card in the deck is Seedborn Muse, mm-hmm. similar to Rune, because it works so well with Thrasios, where if you have eight mana, Seedborn Muse, and Thrasios, that's insanity. You're just activating it constantly. Twice on everybody's turn. Yeah. Like, it's card draw and ramp, so mm-hmm. it's just like you, if it makes it back to your turn, plus you activate it for Thrasios if you get, you're trying to get lands. Because as you get lands into play, that's more stuff that untaps with Seedborn Muse. So yeah. it's very easy to be like, activate it twice, get two lands. Go to Jimmy's turn, activate it twice, get two lands. Now when activate I... Activate three times. Now I'm activating three Ooh. times and it just builds on itself. It's like in a Starcraft or one of those RTSs where yeah. the first thing you want to do for the very start of the game is just build a lot of drones that are gathering you more resources. That's kind of what that does. The only other card I considered, and it's interesting because I consider it to be a Vile Smasher deck, but both cards are... Oh, uh, Thrasios base cards. Yeah, I was going to comment on that. Yeah. Well, I should actually, before I go on to the next card, say that Seaborn Muse is very good with Vile Smasher in that the deck is built to cast things on other players' turn because Vile Smasher specifically right. says it targets on the first spell you cast each turn. So there's a lot of instance. So being able to be like, cast something on my turn, cast Dig Through Time on your turn, yeah. cast, you know, Curtain's Call on your turn. Eight damage, nine damage, yeah, just six tons, damage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Seaborn Muse allows you to just do that. Um, the other card I considered was Training Grounds, though. Yeah. And Training Grounds is interesting because it definitely makes Thrasios much, much better. Just straight broken. Straight broken. Yeah, two man for that, and then you're just doing it constantly. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, it's interesting. You're right. Vile Smasher is the way you win the game, but Thrasios, I could also argue, is really the way you win the game. Yeah. Because in so many situations, it's just like, I don't know how to dig myself out of this. Thank goodness I have uh, Training Grounds and Thrasios out because I can activate this six times, draw a bunch of cards, put a bunch of lands out, and just put myself in a stronger position. I don't know how many games I've won where it's basically even, but Thrasios is out. Yeah. And not even with Training Grounds or Seedborn Muse. Just Thrasios. And it's just like, yep, I'm just going to activate it four times, and that's going to get two lands and play two cards in my hand, and then my I'm just now ahead. Yeah. Even though it doesn't look like it. It doesn't <laughs> seem like it. Which is, by the way, one of the best markers of a good card is it's, it's innocuous. Yeah. You don't realize the power. Same with Ultra of Dimension in a lot of cases. Yep. Um, I would also argue that there is some value to Training Grounds being an enchantment and harder to yes. remove than Seaborn Muse. So in some situations, if you're playing against a bunch of like red decks... and <laughs> Yeah, they just can't touch it. It's also one mana. Yeah. And that's a big thing too. So like if I was going to Vampiric Tutor on turn one... Very good chance I'm going to go get Training Grounds or yeah. Deathrite Shaman. Those are the two I would think about. Yeah. All right, next deck is one of my favorites I played on the show. It's Animar Morph. It's uh, a sweet deck. Designed by Vinny originally. Uh, this was on Game Night's number 16, I believe, with, uh, with Kenji and Gabby. Yep. Um, and this deck is all about using Animar to play Morphs because Animar, if he has three plus one plus one counters on it, your Morphs are free and you're just building your Animar up. You're playing a ton of creatures and no one knows what you're doing. So I, I thought a bit about this as well and I came up with two answers because I couldn't decide between the two. I like the first one a lot. Yeah, I think it, I think it is just straight up Teamer Sabretooth. One of the most underrated cards in the whole format. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this card allows you to bounce your own creatures back to your hand. It also for gives... pretty cheap cost. Yeah, yeah, for two mana, right? Yeah, one in the green. So um, good with the morphs because you flip them over, get their effect, bounce them back to your hand, play them for play free, them free. As morph, and reset, and they're just staring at you being like, so you can den protector again, or so you can yeah. counter or spell jack another thing. Yep, yep. <laughs> it's a real feel-bad card once it really gets going because of what Animar does in terms of making the cost less. Mm-hmm. Um, and Team of Sabretooth, I think, is also just great in a lot of decks that want to reuse uh, abilities. Like, so many times it's like, well, I, I, you know, there, I don't want to dedicate a single card just to blink once. Uh, I'd rather have a card like Team of Sabretooth where it's repeatable and you can do it over and over and over again. I've definitely lost numbers of games where 
that's the only card in their deck that could kill me, right? So I, oh, I had yeah. a Glacial Chasm out against a green deck, and they were able to get back their Acidic Slime and do it. Or I I don't remember. I had something else that they couldn't get rid of, but they were like, okay, Acidic Slime seven times, get rid of seven of your lands. And it's like, <laughs> okay. Like, that's a way around... Th- that's a way for you to attack things from different angles. Yeah. Using certain effects over and over. If you ever create infinite mana with, um, team or saber tooth and anything that does anything out, then you're just going to machine know. gun down. everything. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the only other consideration I have was Ixadron, which mm-hmm. gets played in the show, but I realized that Ixadron isn't great if there's nothing else on the board. Right. It's not uh, good all the time. It's not good all the time. When it's good, it's amazing because it flips your morphs back down. But a lot of times you may be in a position where you're like, I just need to play something to get rid of the board. I haven't flipped my morphs over yet. It's not the right timing. So Ixadron requires a bit more circumstances to be like exactly right for it to be full maximum potential. It's more like when it's good, it's good, but it's not always good. Whereas Team or Saber Tooth is just always kind of good. Yeah. Cause, I mean, like even just protecting your commander and bouncing it and stuff, there's a lot of It protects of itself too. It protects so itself, a powerful yeah. card that protects itself is very strong because, or it's hard to remove, like you said, the enchantment thing. Yeah. Makes itself indestructible. So that does make it tough to get rid of. Yeah. I like that. Because when you go get your best card, you want to know you're going to get use out of it, right? Yeah. So Hermit Druid, like you said, might not be the best card to get because someone's definitely going to try and kill it if they can. Whereas Team or Sabretooth is a lot harder because they have to have Exile or you have to have no mana open. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. The next one is my Fire Song and Sunspeaker deck, which I played in episode 25, which was with Rachel and Kenji. One of the most memorable games, I think, ever on the show, by this the way. This is where Rachel and I had a counterspell war what? where she's in Orzhov <laughs> and I'm in Boros. That was great. That was great. <laughs> uh, and what made that possible is the best card, I think, in the deck, and it's Sunforger. Easily, without a doubt. Um, the best card in a lot of equipment-based decks, uh, especially Boros decks. Yeah, I think if it's if you have Sunforger in your deck, uh, it probably is the best card if you're a Boros deck specifically. Mm-hmm. Or even if you're like Mardu, it might be. Because it just, it tutors and cast the card. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, it is pretty ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, I considered either Flux Reservoir, uh, mm-hmm. as we talked about, but I think that that fits in the category like Ixodron does, where when it's good, it's really good, but it's not right. something you'd always go get. Whereas right, Sunforger, right, right. you're just like, I, if I could start every game with that in my opening hand, I would do it. That, that card is so good in the deck. Yeah, I agree. All right, next up, we have my Kumena deck, which is my Merfolk tribal deck in Game Nights 14. There is an argument that a Herald's Horn or Vanquisher's Banner card is the best card in the deck, but honestly, it is just straight-up Surge Spanner. This is whenever uh, something gets tapped, you get to pay one in the blue and bounce a permanent. It's ridiculous. And your commander is all about tapping your other Merfolk. So this is just one of those cards that by itself works with the commander. You can tap that to make your commander unblockable, and then you can pay the one in the blue to start bouncing things. Uh, when you have multiple things going, when you have other cards that are able to untap your cards and just retap them over and over again, bouncing permanence, capsize, right? It's capsize unlimited on the capsizes, yeah. Yeah, for, for cheaper, too. Capsize buyback is six mana. This is just one in the blue to do it. Um, and because it works so well with the commander, that's why I think it elevates it to the top slot, just because you don't need a lot of setup for this to work. You can just play your commander and this at the same time, and you're already off to the races. It's a card that uh, I think we're running into a similar thing with all these. It's like it will close out the game, but it's also just good value in the mid game. Yeah. When it's not closing out the game, it's just keeping things under control. Yeah. But it also, you're always happy to have it. Right. It, but it also can snowball and win you the game by itself, too. Yeah. Yeah. Good, uh, good, good times. Deck. The next deck we're going to talk about is my Shadowborn Apostles deck. Well, it's clearly Shadowborn Apostle. <laughs> There's 31 of them, so it's yeah, not the best it, card right? in the deck. <laughs> uh, this was Game Nights number 18. So. Again, I, this one, this one's tough. Yeah, I think 
I think it's the first one. <sighs> Here's the thing. The the card that I tutor for probably the most in the deck is Skull Clamp. Mm-hmm. Because that velocity of getting extra cards is just hard to replicate. Not to mention you want to draw more than just your Shadowborn Apostles. Right. And you need to draw a certain amount of them, and you just need to hit all your land drops. Yeah. And it just helps you in a lot of ways. However... Edgewalker, which allows you to cast the Shadowborn Apostles for free, free, is is the card I tutor for the most, sort of from the mid game on. Once I oh okay, so if I already have card draw going in some other way and or enough Shadowborn Apostles, then but if I if I didn't have either of those things and the game's going kind of mediocre for me, mm-hmm. I'm probably getting Skull Clamp. However. Edgewalker. It's it's very close. It's hard for me to say which one's better. Are you walking on the edge? I'm walking on the edge. <laughs> of the two I'm cards. I'm on the edge. Of glory. Uh, yeah, Edgewalker, I mean, just because it gives you the ability, it's it reminds me of the Paradox Engine. Yeah. Where it's just like, go off, go off, can't stop me now because and of one And with Athreos, thing. a lot of times you're sacking them all to get a demon and then they have to give them back to you that you then just cast them again yeah. for free. Or they're paying a bunch of life. Yeah. yeah. But if you think of that setup, Athreos is acting as your card draw, whereas mm-hmm. that setup's not very good if you don't have a ton of uh, you know enough card draw because then you just like play them for free sack them get a demon but then what yeah edgewalker definitely has the ability to have people go yeah it's okay yeah yeah skull Ooh, clamp, so good skull clamp definitely everybody knows go, yeah okay oh they're all one ones obviously yeah well speaking um, of skull clamp yeah kyle's locust god deck is the last uh deck we'll talk about today it's kyle not even Hill. our deck it's not even our deck but you know kyle is really well known for building very powerful decks very synergistic very good decks that can win on turn three or four and sometimes even he's definitely than pushed that. towards competitive edh these days he's yeah. he's enjoying it more um and yeah. i think that's in his character i mean i've gone sure. rock climbing with the guy and he's also very competitive when it comes to that he is extremely strong and, and puts a lot of effort into it so it makes sense that his decks would have the similar sort of like knife's edge yeah i mean i'm not down on kyle at all because we know that about him so every time if you're gonna play in a game with kyle just play your strong stuff and it's those are fun games for yeah, sure they're fun games uh, so um, this was extra turns number two yeah uh locust god wants you to draw cards and then it makes hasty flyers yes and so josh and i both you put down the first one skull clamp which again you're making one ones you're drawing cards and you're making more flyers so you can just keep making more flyers over and over and over again. It's unlimited card draw based on how much mana you have. have, And then you always are up one flyer. Yeah, so I think that's really, really powerful. And then I looked at the list again, I think there may be a case for Perforos because it is the almost guaranteed way to close out the game. But Skull Clamp is just so good in that deck. Yeah, Perforos is great, and it's. I think it fills a closer position. But if if the Locust God deck ever gets Perforos out, if you don't die right there, which probably you will... Then definitely, if they untap with it, you will die. You'll you'll never survive multiple perforous turns from the Locust God. They just got a wheel like one time that's like twenty eight to everybody. Yeah, or so. Like yeah. it's, it's insanity. The thing about the Locust God deck too that's really good that made that takes perforous I think out of contention is that it can kill you without perforous. It's making yeah. a bunch of one one hasty flyers. They can still smack you in the air, and you're going to take a lot from that. And it's hard fact, to kill the Locust God. Yeah, like and like what do you target? Do you kill the Locust God, or do you try and get rid of a board? Like you, like how many board wipes do you have to play against the Locust God deck to win? Yeah, I don't know a lot, and they have haste why do the flyers have haste so that's another thing with skull clamp is you can sort of play it get it going actually use the stuff right now yeah and gain more flyers right like you start with one now you have two then you have three four and it just keeps going up so very very powerful interesting okay to the listeners how do you decide what the best card in your deck is are there any categories that we missed that you use to categorize you know what the great cards in your deck are i'd also like to know in the comments you know maybe list deck name best card Right. And and put what Commander, it is. Commander, yeah, yeah. Yeah, what you think 
yeah, you know, if you have 20 decks, you don't have to do it for all of them, but do two or three of your decks. Just say, yeah, Rune, colon, Seedborn Muse. Just just let us know what decks you have and what you think the best card is in that deck. What yeah. what card you go get in most situations. I'd also be interested to see what that card is for lower-powered commanders. Yeah. All the commanders we talked about today were pretty up there in terms of, like, they're just good, you know, cards in general, but, like, maybe for the decks that are, you know, the, like, what's the best card in SRAM? Yeah, that's really interesting. Because <laughs> it's like, is it just Is zero? it one of the other, like, creatures that draws you cards? Or it might be like... Yeah, or like the aid or something that allows you yeah. to equip it instant speed. It might be an, an enabler. Yeah, an enabler. Because every other card in that deck, kind of like the Shadowborn Apostles deck, synergizes with the commander super Yeah, well. it's not any of the zero casts... Uh, yeah. Equipments, but it might you be... could say zero cast as a whole, but then that's not the single best card. In that's your deck. cheating. Yeah, that is cheating. Well, when you identify what those best cards are, <laughs> uh, then you probably want to, if you don't already have them, buy them. And the best way to do that, and the best place to do that, is cardkingdom.com/slash command zone. If you use that affiliate link when you order all your magic products, singles, anything at all, you know the holiday season is coming up. We're buying a lot of gifts for our friends and family. Yeah, it's a great. This point. is a good time to use that affiliate link to double dip. You're getting something for your friends and your family, something that they're gonna enjoy you're helping support content that you enjoy uh card kingdom will get it there super fast too and if they say they're going to get it there before the holidays they definitely are going to do that and that is a worry at this time of year definitely like this is when you don't want to be messing around with like places that take a long time to ship definitely not and you want to trust the people that's coming from and you want to trust that that's all going to come at the same time and another great stocking stuffer is ultra pro products that's right if you're buying someone a pre-con you should buy them 100 sleeves to go with it maybe like a satin tower deck box maybe the playmat that matches their commander maybe you know they they love aminato and they they've always wanted to go in for it or they love jesper's art for blitter blossom yeah yeah Yeah. so ultra pro has been making products forever they have every single magic product under the sun that you can imagine and think of and it's always tied to new set releases they've got tons of stuff in the past as well whenever you see for instance even a uh, kickstarter for someone else doing a playmat they're usually made through ultra pro so if you buy ultra pro products at your big box retailers at car kingdom or at your lgs you're also supporting our show there so we very much appreciate it all right, now it's time for the end step where we talk about something cool outside the world of magic. Is that the I don't have one? I don't have one. This I have time. one. Yes. I have I knew one. it. See, I felt it. <laughs> I can never tell if you're like, I have something awesome or I have nothing at all. Yeah, I'm not chomping at the bit this time. Okay, so do you know Riley Knight? Yes. Riley Knight Riley is. Power. Yes, Riley Knight is one of the commentators for a lot of live magic tournaments and events. I think he's worked on the Pro Tour, mm-hmm. Mythic Championships, Invitationals, whatever they're called now. GPs does a lot of stuff with Channel Firewall. Um, I got to play at Command Fest Seattle in that charity event with Riley. Took oh, him out. Cool. Took him out in his combo deck. Um, that was fun. But in the process of hanging out with Riley a little bit, and we'd met him at Vegas. Mm-hmm. I, we'd met him before this. But um, he mentioned that he has a history podcast that he does. No way. I was like, wait, what? How have I not heard of this? So it's called Half Arsed History. <laughs> it's a little different he, than hardcore history. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> he's Aussie. So I guess they say arsed as well. Um, okay. But it is, yeah, he's, I didn't know this, but he's like, he studied history. So he's like a history guy. And you know, I talk about my favorite podcasts. A lot of them are history podcasts. Mm -hmm. Um, So I started listening to it and it's really, really good. Uh, Riley's a funny guy. He's obviously good on camera and good. He's got a certain charisma and he's charming. And so, uh, yeah. His wit is second to none. He is so fast. Yeah. uh, And his podcast has a lot of like funny, like he's Aussie. So he's using a lot of Aussie slang and stuff, but he, he's really relating history, not in this dry, boring, like British style or something. (laughs) Sorry, Brits. Sorry. (laughs) The Aussies Uh, (laughs) win this one. (laughs) He's like, he's like, yeah, he's like commenting in a way that you can relate to tying it into like pop culture references and things like that. And, and it's really easy and fast and, 
and enjoyable. Um, so another thing that I listen to at the gym. No, uh, that's great. Half arsed history. Everyone else is just pounding hard beats and you're just like listening to Aussie humor about some <laughs> event in the world. Yeah. That's amazing. Okay. Uh, if you want to listen to other podcasts that aren't half arsed, you should check out the Masters of Modern. Uh, you can find them at the MMCast online on Twitter, as well as going to YouTube, searching them up. They're doing videos now. And right next to us on Collected.Company. They're hosted by Ben Bateman and Alex Kessler. Our editing and graphics and logistics team is Craig Manchette. Ashlyn Rose, Alfred Estaca, Terry Robertson, Josh Murphy, Jake Boss, Sam Waldo, and we just added a new member of the team, Lady Danger, is here helping us out. So, welcome, welcome. Yes, tons of editing to be done. Thank you, everyone. Oh, and special thanks to Jeffrey Palmer, who does the living card animations that begin and end all of our shows, as well as the cool animations behind us in the windows. You can find Jeffrey at Living Cards MTG. And of course, all of this is possible thanks to your wonderful support on Patreon, as well as the Kickstarter that just finished oh, yeah. the game nights. Uh, so again, like when we're making new hires here, when we're adding staff on, it's thanks to your support that we're able to do it and increase the content and all that stuff. So thank you again to everyone that donated. And if you're curious, we will post updates on the website. We're going to be sending out uh, surveys and all that stuff to collect our information. So don't fret. It's all coming. We just need to get everything settled after the big campaign. Yeah, the Kickstarter went really, really well. We were blown away by all the support. So thanks so much, everybody out there. Thank you, everybody. All right, and we will see you next time. Peace. For further inquiries, send an email to commandcast at rocketjump.com or ask us on Twitter at JF Wong and at Josh Lee Kwai. See you later, alligator. Greetings, humans. <laughs>